This week on Geek Explained, it's officially October. To kick off the spooky season here on the podcast, we're taking a special look at Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque's American Vampire. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is the latest edition of the Geeksplained Spotlight, where every month we take a special look at a limited series, graphic novel, or run on a comic, and we talk about why it's so amazing. And our latest edition is coinciding with the month of October and kicking off Halloween season with Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque's American Vampire. I've been wanting to talk about this series for a long time, and I figure now is a perfect opportunity, especially because their latest installment of the series, American Vampire 1976, is hitting shelves this week. We also have the weekly review on season two of The Boys. A lot happened in this episode, and I can't wait to talk about it. And of course, this week's comics countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, so we got some news for you this week. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Right, we're going to kick things off with film news, because there's some inter- interesting stuff going on. Uh, first off, we have another delay, two delays actually, when it comes to uh, films that were supposed to come out this year, have been delayed one time and are getting delayed at least another time. I don't know how many times uh, No Time to Die has been delayed. Uh, the new James Bond film, the final Daniel Craig James Bond film, has been delayed yet again to 2021, and it looks like this has had kind of a ripple effect when it comes to uh, theaters in the U.S. and the U.K., because uh, Cineworld, who is the big kind of parent company of uh, Regal Cinemas, announced shutdowns all over the U.S. and the U.K., And this means that a lot of uh, Regal Cinemas, uh, the theaters, are going to be shutting down both in uh, the U.S. as well as all over the U.K. This sucks. I think it's um, it's unfortunate, but it is, you know, something that is going to happen. The more that uh, films get delayed, the more that uh, theaters can't really get people into see movies, we're not going to be able to uh, keep these theaters open, which is unfortunate. But again, I'm still kind of of the mind that I'm not super comfortable uh, going to a theater just yet. Um, what's been great out here in uh, in LA is we've seen like a big uptick in uh, 
the return of drive-in movies, uh, which has been great. So I'm hoping that we can find some kind of balance and hopefully uh, we're not going to see more uh, more closures. I think Cinemark is part of the Cineworld uh, family as well, but Cinemark has said that they aren't shuttering any of their locations. So it's a complicated situation, just like all of this is. But um, yeah, so that's kind of the ripple effect of No Time to Die getting delayed. Also delayed, Dune, you know, that movie that is about a book that I have no idea what it's about. <laughs> um, it has been delayed to late 2021. Um, like I said, I, I'm interested in what I saw, but I know nothing next to nothing about the book or the film. Um, so it sucks for Dune fans, but, uh, maybe it'll give me time to figure out what the hell Dune is. So, (laughs) um, I guess that's sort of a positive who knows. Um, and then finally with film news, I think the craziest bit of film news is that, um, we got some Spider-Man 3 news. Uh, Tom Holland's third Spider-Man film seems to be dabbling a little bit in the Spider-Verse because not only do we have J.K. Simmons returning as uh, J. Jonah Jameson, but it has been confirmed that Jamie Foxx is returning to play Electro. Um if you remember all the way back to what was it 2014 2015 um jamie fox played electro in the amazing spider-man 2 the greatest of the spider-man films um oh god that was a that was a hell of a film that was another world that was another it, it feels like a lifetime ago that jamie fox was a blue electro essentially rehashing the uh, jim carrey batman forever uh, storyline for the final Andrew Garfield installment. Um, this is weird. I don't know what this means. I don't know why they decided to do this. I can only assume that we're starting to dabble in uh, Spider-Verse-isms uh, now that we know that we talked about last week uh, the shakeup when it comes to the uh, Phase 4 films and now that uh, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness is going to be coming out after Spider-Man 3 and after WandaVision, which might be dabbling with multiverse stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't know what this means. I don't know what this means. Um, if it means that we could possibly get Andrew Garfield back in the suit, all thumbs up from me, but I don't know what's going on. <laughs> we have no update on what this means. We have no update on what they're doing this. We just know that it's happening. Um, I can only assume that this is to kind of hot shot a Sinister Six build. Uh, we do know that Michael Keaton is going to be re- returning. Um, we're assuming, we have no confirmation, but we're assuming as Adrian Toomes and Morbius. Um, so maybe, and this is just the thought I'm coming up with right now, maybe the Sinister six is not going to be comprised of villains from one set uh marvel universe maybe the sinister six are comprised of a different set of um villains from throughout the spider-verse so we could pull in morbius from this uh from his universe uh Electro from that universe and kind of mix and match them. That'd be interesting, but it'd be super hard to pull off, especially kind of bringing everything together in one film. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. It's weird. Uh, Moving on to TV news. uh, We've got 
a couple sad pieces of news here. Um, first off, Netflix has officially canceled Glow. Um, this is coming after the official renewal of Glow last year when it was reported that it was coming back for its fourth and final season. They were, as far as I could tell, they are able to get one episode completely fully shot out and everything before they had to shut down due to COVID. And it looks like Netflix just can't... Um, I guess they just don't want to deal with the costs of running the filming for Glow. You know, they got to make that Witcher money. Um, So this sucks. I loved Glow. I'm a huge pro wrestling mark, and I really enjoyed this show. I enjoyed the cast. I thought it was a great little uh, peek into women's wrestling and that they gave, you know, they took the real-life thing that happened, which was the gorgeous gorgeous ladies of wrestling, and gave it a little bit more of a uh, modern nuance when it comes to storytelling. Um, It was based on a true story, and I don't know. It sucks. I really loved that cast. I really loved the stories and i'm going to miss seeing the gorgeous ladies of wrestling on netflix uh and right off the heels of that supergirl has also been technically canceled i guess uh they confirmed that this next season which i think is season six or seven i am going to say season six and i'm just going to go with that um will be the final season that uh melissa benoist I think is how you say it. I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, we'll suit up as Kara Danvers in the Supergirl suit. Um, I, no, I have no idea what this means, but um, it's been confirmed, I think, by Melissa that she will be returning at some point down the line as Supergirl, but we're not going to see her as uh, a lead in a fully fleshed out Supergirl show. I can only assume uh, this is because they are looking to kind of shift their gaze to Superman and Lois, which is gaining traction, and they're back to filming again. So, I don't know. It's sad. Um, I think that Supergirl never really got to, when it comes to the show itself, never really got to hit the heights of its potential. I think the first couple seasons were probably my favorite, though I would say that some of the storytelling got stronger as the show went on. Um, And it's really, it's unfortunate because they just set up um, in the Elseworlds crossover and then kind of strengthened it in Crisis on Infinite Earths that their, you know, world's finest was going to be Batwoman and uh, Supergirl. And now we have neither of the, you know, I'm assuming when it comes to the next crossover, we're going to have neither of those original um those original two in that in those roles, so that's sad. Uh, moving on to miscellaneous news here. Uh, three pieces of video game news. Uh, first off, uh, I'm going to talk about Ghost of Tsushima. We finally got a trailer for uh, Ghost of Tsushima version 1.1, which is the first big update. I think it's the only big update that's going to come for Ghost of Tsushima, which adds a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, First off, we are officially getting a New Game Plus, which makes me really excited as someone who really wanted a New Game Plus for this game. Uh, They've added in more trophies. There's going to be some enhanced gear, uh, armor dyes, and all this stuff. So, you know, it'll entice players who really wanted to get more of that world uh, to jump back in, including myself. Uh, We're also getting an official... We're getting DLC, which is great. Uh, And it's not just any DLC. It's that co-op DLC, Ghost of Tsushima Legends, that we've talked about previously in the podcast. I'm really excited about it. It should be really, really cool. Um, It looks like it's going to be either a two-player co-op story campaign, and there are also, I guess, um, four-player survival missions. So that's really interesting. 
probably fighting against some kind of like undead demons or stuff like that. So I'm really excited. Should be really good. Can't wait to play this. Um, Speaking of big, big old games, uh, we've got the unfortunate news that CD Projekt Red, who was behind The Witcher and is also uh, the studio coming up with uh, Cyberpunk 2077, um, is we got reports this past week that they have forced their studio into crunch to make sure that Cyberpunk is good to go and as good as it can be before its launch next month. Um, This, you know, it sucks. I don't... I kind of fall somewhere in the middle when it comes to the crunch debate. I think it's wrong to overwork people in this way, but at the same time, um, sometimes that's just what you got to do. It sucks. I don't think it's right, but um, if it's in service of the game, I think that, you know, if they want to put as much polish on it as possible, I am okay with that as a consumer. Um, But again, it's a complicated situation. There's no... In my opinion, there's no real right answer to it. It just it sucks for the people who are getting worked overtime in not great conditions to get this game done just so that we can have it on time. But the big news of the week, pretty much I would say outweighing every single bit of news we've talked about somehow, is that uh, we got more information on the Spider-Man PS5 remaster that's going to be packaged up with Spider-Man Miles Morales in the Ultimate Launch Edition, and that is that um, alongside graphical um, improvements, uh, we're getting three new suits, which includes one of my favorites, the Amazing Spider-Man suit from Amazing Spider-Man 1. I am going to be playing this game with that suit. Mark my words, that is what I'm going to be using for the entire campaign when I go forward and platinum this again. Um, The big news, the big controversy was that uh, they have technically, they have basically recasted Peter Parker. Uh, The face that you will see when you boot up Spider-Man Remastered is not the face that you became accustomed to in Spider-Man PS4. Um, It's strange. I, you know, I was one of the many people who was like, this is bullshit. When I first saw the news, I was really frustrated because I came to love this incarnation of Peter Parker. Um, And a lot of that, the majority of that, I would say 95% of that, has to do with the incredible performance put on by Yuri Lowenthal. But there is a bit of the, um, uh, the appearance of that character uh, that really sold me on this character. This character is supposed to be 23 years old. He's eight years into his career as Spider-Man. And from what we understand, from what they've reported, um, Insomniac chose to do this because they needed someone whose uh, facial structure matches closer to Yuri Lowenthal's. I've looked at side-by-side photos of Yuri Lowenthal and the new actor that they got, and they don't look very similar. Maybe I'm missing something, but that just doesn't square with me. It doesn't make sense. Um, and it sucks, but at the same time, people have just been just lighting Twitter on fire for this. Like, I don't like it, but I'm not going to send death threats to the new um, the new uh, actor or to Insomniac or any of that team just because they changed the face of a video game character. Um, it sucks, I'll admit it, like, I'm, I don't like this new face, I don't think it's an it's a large coincidence that it looks very much, the face at least, looks much closer to Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence, but, I mean, they've said the contrary. I don't know. 
Uh, I just, I, I think it's a real, real shame that people are getting so up in arms with this, that they're making petitions and they're threatening people. Um, you need, if you are doing that, I'm sorry, but you need to get help. You need to see help. There is something that you need to do in your life to get you to a place that you don't go after people and send death threats to game developers because they changed the face of a character in a video game. It's not okay. It's just, it's not. Just period, full stop. I don't like to um, bash people, but it's like if you are part of that contingency that is like, oh, you know, this is a travesty. You ruined this character. Um, get over it. Like, it is it is what it is. They're not going to change it. And like I said, 95% of that character is owed to Yuri Lowenthal's performance, and they didn't change the voice actor. They didn't change Yuri Lowenthal. So that character is still played by that same person. There's just a different face on it. Is it weird? Absolutely. Do I like it? No. But it is what it is. It is what it's going to be. There's no sense in trying to bash people or threaten people or send hate just because you don't like it. It sucks. I get it. Move on. There are much larger things going on in the world that deserve our attention. And it's it's not right that people are acting this way. So um, that's just me, though. That's how I feel about it. It's, it's a video game, guys. Come on. Um, but anyway... I, I feel like I went on a weird tangent there, but it needed to be said. Um, no comics news this week, but uh, this is a big week in comics. Um, we're going to get to it a little bit later with the uh, comics countdown. We've got a big comics countdown for you. But the main course of this episode, the entree, if you will, is our latest Geeksplained spotlight on Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque's American Vampire. And where down we go, 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 where down we go, 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 so where down we go, way down we go. Welcome to the very first installment of the 2020 Geek series. This is a series where every week of the month of October, I'll be tackling the horror genre in a different form of media. This week, we are tackling comic books. And as part of our latest edition of the Geeksplain Spotlight, we're taking a look at one of my favorite horror comics, and that is Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque's American Vampire. But this spotlight is going to be a little bit different from your typical spotlight. Uh, typically with the Geeksplain spotlights, we take a look at one run on a comic, one uh, specific arc, or a graphic novel, but this time I'm going to just be taking a very clear and decisive look at volume one of American Vampire by Scott Snyder, Raphael Albuquerque, and Stephen King. We're going to get into that in just a second. And then I'm going to kind of give you the basic uh, cliff notes, roadmap, whatever you want to call it, so that you can make your way through the series. There's currently eight volumes out right now, encompassing both uh, the first and second cycles of American Vampire, and 
this week is actually uh, it's it's a pretty timely episode because the uh, final uh, edition of American Vampire, American Vampire 1976, is hitting comic stands and comicsology this week. That's right. By the time you're listening to this, uh, American Vampire 1976, number one of nine, I believe, will probably be on the stands or available on Comixology. So hopefully the plan is to get you kind of prepared and ready to jump into that series or jump into really any volume of this series so that you can go ahead and fill your spooky season with some great Halloween comics and I will kind of put out right now there's going to be mild spoilers I'm going to be talking fairly in depth about uh, just the first volume and a little things here and there uh, some basic premises or premises or however you want to call it um, of different volumes throughout the series I'm not going to be going like volume by volume because we could be here for hours and hours and I just want to give you everything you need to know to jump right into the American Vampire series but before we get into the series itself I got to talk about the creators Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque are two of my favorite comics creators in the business today I was introduced to Raphael Albuquerque on a little book called Huck that he did with uh Mark Miller, and I believe it was for Image as well, Um, but this is part of the Miller World brand. Huck is one of my favorite indie comics of all time. If you've never heard of it, you've never read it, definitely go check it out. And if you'd like me to do a spotlight episode on it, I would love to do that. It's one of it it was such a treat and it's such a great comic. And the thing that really sold it to me besides the you know, the great writing was the art because Raphael Albuquerque's art is so incredibly distinct. Anytime you see it, you know immediately that that's, oh, that's Albuquerque art. Like, you know exactly what his style is. It's very, uh, it's very stylized. Um, and it's almost storybook-esque in, um, in its presentation. You open any book that he's got and there's like really nice, um, I'm looking at it right now, and it's just like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's whimsical in a way, but in this book specifically, it's also, he has such a great handle on the horror genre and how to draw horror um, from, like, really kind of grotesque body horror to really unsettling, like, silhouettes and figures. Some of the faces that he draws in this series are just haunting to look at Um, and he does such a great job bringing his distinct style into this series and there are a number of different um, guest artists that will come through Uh, Sean Gordon Murphy does a fantastic job in uh, in a I I don't want to call it a side story but it's um, it's one of the uh, one of the adjacent stories to the main story that we're looking at uh, with the main American Vampire series. And then uh, Dustin Nguyen also has a great little, uh, I want to say like four or five issue run in the series. It's such a great, great like group of artists that have kind of amassed around this series. And what brings it all together is Scott Snyder. You know Scott Snyder, you love Scott Snyder, or you hate Scott Snyder, I guess. Though I don't know anybody who's really like, nah, man, Scott Snyder doesn't know what he's doing. 
Um, I was introduced, like I'm sure a lot of people were, to Scott Snyder through his work on Batman, uh, specifically on his work with Batman the Black Mirror in his Detective Comics run prior to the New 52. But it's really with the New 52 Batman run alongside artist Greg Capullo that he just skyrocketed into superstardom. And he has been just knocking things out of the park for DC ever since. He has been essentially their golden goose, but all the while that he's been the golden child over at DC Comics, he's also been slowly whittling away at American Vampire. And if you know nothing else about Scott Snyder, uh, besides his work on Batman, this is one of the best kept secrets in comics. Um, It is just a fantastic story that Scott has managed to weave throughout history. And the premise behind the entire story that they've crafted here is that Of course, as you can tell, vampires are real. Uh, Vampires have slowly but surely shaped the fabric of history over the course of the, um, really the world, but mainly uh, in the continental United States. Uh, The beginning of our story starts in the uh, 1920s, while at the same time being in the very, very late 1800s during the death of the Wild West. And... What you come to find out during the run of this series is that the vampires are so... um are treated a little bit differently from your typical vampires in your typical stories. Um, They are... There's, like, different species. Uh, Some of them have um, different evolutions, not, like, Pokemon evolutions, but, like, there are specific species of vampires that are, you know... that are um have evolved into having like rock-like skin because they burrow down underneath the ground there are some that are just like these monstrous looking creatures uh there's some that are you know like four or five stories tall um it's really cool the world that they've managed to craft here but looking specifically at volume one the start of it all the beginning of this story uh we are introduced to pearl jones who is a um, I don't know if we'd call her struggling, but we'll just call her a, a struggling actress in 1920s Hollywood. Uh, we all know what that's like, right? Um, and she is, you know, just trying to make it work, trying to get her big break. Her and her uh, best friend, Hattie Hargrove, are working on a movie set, and through different, um, basically through one uh, unfortunate event, happening after another uh pearl is beset upon by these uh by these vampires that are essentially kind of controlling the uh hollywood elite during the 1920s and she is left for dead killed seemingly and left for dead inside of a ditch um where she ends up actually surviving and slowly but surely make dragging her dead body back to her apartment in Hollywood, where she is met by a mysterious man named Skinner Sweet, who is known as the very first American vampire. And accompanying each issue uh, in the initial five issues of this first American Vampire volume, is a backstory written by Stephen King. Um, Yes, that's Stephen King, the one you're thinking about. Um, Stephen King was approached by Scott Snyder to 
I think it was looking at like, hey, can you uh, give us some pointers? You know, how do you, um, what do you think about this? I want to, you know, uh, pinball and ping pong some ideas back and forth with you. And Stephen King was so smitten by the concept that he was like, wait, 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 wait a second. I want to get in on this. And so the backup issues to the initial five from the first volume did. Uh, basically take place in the late 1800s and show us the origin of Skinner Sweet, how he became the very first American vampire. And what's really nice about this parallel story is you get to see how the... um, how the times change from uh, decades between Skinner being turned and Pearl being turned because Skinner Sweet does end up saving Pearl's life by turning her into just the second American vampire. Um, We find out that most of the vampire covens, most of the um, vampire elites that we see, especially in in the early stages of the series, are European vampires that came over during the settling of America, uh, during the gold rush, the pioneer days, and they have been just kind of working in the darkness, controlling things ever since. And so the first volume is really about Pearl Jones getting revenge on her attackers and then essentially getting swept up in the life of being a vampire and something that makes American vampires a little bit different from traditional vampires and the European vampires that we see in these um, in the story uh, is that American vampires can a live in sunlight freely and without any kind of detrimental um, detrimental effects. B, they have these monstrous forms with these giant, like, talons and these really just vicious-looking, monstrous vampire forms. And then, as opposed to being weak to wood, like wooden stakes, garlic, that kind of thing, uh, American vampires are susceptible to gold. So you'll see throughout the series how gold is utilized in different ways um, for specific... um, specific vampires in the line because even though Skinner Sweet and Pearl Jones are the first two American vampires in the story, they are not the last. Um, And what I love about this uh, story overall, besides the fact that it's a great um, kind of reconceptualization of the vampire mythos, is that we have two incredibly strong leads in this series. Uh, We get a great cast of characters, and I'm going to talk about some of the notable characters in just a minute. But the two leads, I would say, um, of the entire American vampire story are really Skinner Sweet and Pearl Jones. Skinner Sweet starts off as kind of more or less a primary antagonist and grows into a deuteragonist and then into a secondary protagonist. While Pearl Jones, from the get-go, is introduced, established, and utilized as the primary protagonist for the series. Skinner Sweet himself was brought up during the frontier days alongside his adopted brother, Jim Book. And even though Skinner Sweet uh, grew up in a mostly stable family, uh, the instability in Skinner Sweet's life started very early on, and he quickly became an outlaw, running from the law, um, just doing all the stuff that you would normally do in a uh, in a renegade run-through of Red Dead Redemption 2, and him crossing paths with uh, his adoptive brother, 
uh, Jim Book as adults, with Jim Book being now part of the Pinkerton Agency, uh, really sets the entire thing in motion. Uh, their final, their quote-unquote final confrontation ends with uh, Skinner Sweet being left for dead and then being turned into the first American vampire, where he would continue to live and wreak havoc on the U.S. of A. throughout the decades. Uh, Skinner Sweet is just this incredibly charismatic and self-destructive character he is always looking for the next sugar high and you will rarely see him without a piece of licorice sticking out of his mouth uh what's great about skinner sweet is how complicated of a character he is for the first few volumes he is really set up to be a straight up villain um both his pretty much his backstory in the first volume and then his involvement in subsequent volumes really set him up as a villain and someone that others are hunting throughout this series because as um as skinner sweets uh, live continues on throughout the decades throughout the eras of the u.s so too do does his appetite and so too do the uh, confrontations and conflicts that he creates. There are quite a few different people who are uh, constantly after Skinner, just trying to kill him for one reason or another. But Skinner Sweet always enters into situations like, that ah, could happen, it couldn't happen, whatever's going to happen. Um, and he, ca- he carries that outlaw mentality into every single decade. So even though the times change, the wardrobe changes, and even Skinner's appearance changes from here, uh, here and there, his his outlaw spirit doesn't change, and that's really what drives the character. He is someone who is ultimately incredibly selfish, uh, absolutely self-serving, and is willing to sacrifice anyone and anything to get what he wants or to get away from who he is trying to get away from. So there are multiple occasions where he will seemingly work with other characters, other heroic characters, just to backstab them in the end. And you, it's it's this funny game that you get to play with Skinner Sweet as a character. Because as soon as you see him, you're like, okay, what's he doing there? Why is he here? Who is he... Um, running against this time and then when he ends up linking up with whoever the um lead protagonist is in that particular arc it's a uh, it's just a ticking time bomb until he betrays them so there are definitely moments throughout the series where you are anticipating and you're sitting at the edge of your seat waiting for him to for, waiting for the other shoe to drop and for him to betray the person that he is with and so this not only brings a great amount of suspense but it also brings um, some really great moments where Skinner Sweet surprises you there are moments where he genuinely will exhibit some form of empathy saving someone um turning against the villain of that particular arc to save the hero and ultimately you you can never tell what skinner sweet is up to what he's planning and that's something that i think is so great about his character is that you never know what's going to happen when skinner sweet is on the scene conversely our primary lead pearl jones is an incredibly well-rounded character and a very consistent character as well uh she starts off the series as just this um 
this uh, struggling actress looking to get her neck her first big break and when she is brought into the world of vampires her entire life changes uh she sets about first taking revenge on the vampire coven in hollywood that tried to kill her and then as things kind of start to snowball in her life you get to see how her effects or her viewpoints with the changing times are very much the opposite of Skinner Sweets. Uh, Skinner is more than happy to adapt with the times while you will typically see uh, you'll typically see Pearl try to remain the same, try to stay where she's at, trying to find her own little piece where she can pretend that time has stopped in her own little corner of the world. So you get to see her throughout every single volume try to, I guess, uh, rage against the changing of the times and with the unfortunate... um, Challenges that come with the changing times, especially when it comes to her relationship with one Henry Preston. We're going to talk about Henry Preston in a second, but their marriage and their relationship is something that is one of my favorite aspects of the entire series. They really do... um, take the time to not only establish them in the first volume, you get to see them meet, you get to see them fall in love, but as the volumes go on, you get to see how much Henry ages and how much Pearl stays the same, and how that uh, how that fact affects their relationship differently for each of them. Uh, Pearl is constantly worried about Henry um, growing old and dealing with the fact that she will she is basically going to have to watch him die someday while Henry is just he's just what a guy Henry Preston is man he is someone who is willing to throw himself in front of a train if it means saving pearl in any aspect whether literally or figuratively and pearl goes through her fair share of hardships in this story she goes through her fair share of heartbreaks having to deal with not only the changing times not only uh henry aging but also the reoccurrence of skinner sweet throughout her life and the two of them are so well entwined throughout the story that Even if the story was just about one of them, they could easily stand on their own. But when they're together in a story, whether they're going up against each other or working together on something, they're magic. And the two of them work so well together because of how different they are with um, Skinner Sweet being just completely self-serving and Pearl being anything but. I really, really dig their interactions and their chemistry, which sounds weird when you're looking at just um, two characters on a printed page, Uh, but it's true. The chemistry between them is undeniable in every single volume, in every single story that they run into each other. Um, And what I really enjoy about the world that... that Pearl and Skinner inhabit is the idea that they take different conventions that we've seen before when it comes to vampires and not only expand them, but also um, modernize them in a way. Because at this point, we're sitting here in 2020, as of this recording, um, we've more or less seen everything that the vampire genre can bring. So now it's about revitalizing that remixing the tenants that we're used to and trying to um 
Make them work not just for your story, but in your world that you're crafting. Uh, so we see different things like different vampire races, different vampire species. Some prey on the other. Uh, you get to see vampires that are littered throughout uh, different political circles or, you know, back alley um uh, back alley gangs of vampires. Uh, at the same time, you get to see organizations set up to go against vampires. The VMS, the Vassals of the Morning Star, are a pretty consistent um, presence throughout the series, headed up initially by Lucian Hobbs, who is an, another incredible character. Um, it's really interesting watching the development of this organization starting off as just kind of this ragtag group eventually partnering up with the u.s government getting actual funding getting to be essentially shield but going up against uh going up against vampires instead of extraterrestrial threats it's really cool watching them go and build themselves out into a true blue essentially spy organization uh, running jobs sending people out on missions gaining agents losing agents and then eventually of course with the uh, changing of the times them kind of falling out of favor with the government and watching them essentially get pared down back to their bare bones skeleton crew it's really cool watching both sides both the vampires and the vms uh trading blows trading wins trading defeats throughout the years and throughout the decades and it makes the interactions between both groups in any given story in this world really intriguing and fun to read uh what i but the thing that really like gets me about these stories and if you know anything about me i think you would be absolutely shocked that I haven't talked about this yet is that essentially this story is a collection of anthology period pieces I am a sucker for period pieces that's just who I am I love this stuff especially if you're looking at the 20s through the 50s I am just the biggest mark for those decades and any kind of media that covers those decades and the fact that the first volume starts you off in the 1920s the second volume takes you into the 30s the third volume takes you into the 40s and so on and so forth all the way up to where we are now with uh american vampire 1976 hitting shelves this week it's such a fun for me just speaking as someone who is a period piece nut um it's so fun for me to watch people grow and change and to watch the architecture the fashion the even the vernacular change from volume to volume and getting to see different locations and how time has affected the passage of those locations of those characters uh just seeing pearl go from her almost uh, flapper girl aesthetic in the 20s all the way up through this long hair military jacket wearing uh, aesthetic she's got going in the 60s during second cycle is just a really cool thing for me to read and if you're a fan of stuff like that I think this would be a series that you should absolutely dive into because not only do you get uh, these really fun and really dramatic and super unsettling at times stories deeply uh deeply set into the horror genre but you also get to find these really fun period piece dramas you get to see the effects of how the changing of the times affects the people that 
are going through these stories. You get to see uh, some really distinct racism. You get to see some uh, really interesting sexism throughout the not interesting deplorable of course but like it's really fascinating to watch these characters deal with the uh societal and social um constructs that are present in each decade and it essentially does what i think the uh the second wave or the second era of the Fox X-Men was trying to do where every movie was like a different decade. Um, first class being the sixties, uh, age of a pot or no days of future past being in the seventies, so on and so forth. Um, but because these characters are vampires and they don't age, it works a little bit better than seeing someone like a, you know, James, a 25 year old James McAvoy in the 60s, still looking early 30s in the 1990s. Um, them being vampires in this story completely does away with any kind of plot holes with that. And on top of that, you get to see characters age. Watching Henry Preston, and I keep harping on him, we're going to talk more about him, go from this um, just. St- you know, I said it already for uh, Pearl, but he's the struggling musician in the 1920s, watching him age and grow, uh, going to war, coming back, all of that stuff throughout these volumes really gives you a sense, not just of passage of time, but of character development. And for me, I've always been a character guy over plot. I think you can have kind of a bare bones story if you have incredible characters to fill that story. But what the series does is it takes a story that on paper could be incredibly by the numbers and really does more than you would expect and far exceeds expectations when it comes to that and matches up and I would say um, gets right up there with the level of character that is brought to each of these stories that are brought to life by the writing and the art. Um, Some key characters that I want to talk about just real quick, um, because even though Skinner and Pearl are our leads, they're not the only important characters here. Uh, first off, I've already talked about him. I'm going to talk about him here. Henry Preston. Henry Preston is the man. Henry Preston is just the greatest guy in this entire series. You can talk about like, oh, Skinner's really cool, or oh, Jim Book is you know this paragon of virtue, but. Henry Preston, man, he is he is the ideal. He is the guy that you would be proud to have in the foxhole with you. He is the guy who uh, is kind of dragged into this weird life alongside Pearl um, and just kind of takes it in stride. Uh, Henry goes from, you know, this... I don't know. I can't really say if he was homeless or not, but it's more or less implied in the first uh, in the first volume that he is, you know, kind of, you know, down on his luck in, you know, trying to make things work as a musician, as a guitarist in the 1920s, Uh, watching him grow and change. He goes to war, as I stated before, in uh, volume three goes, uh, you know, he's drafted into World War Two and you get to see just his demeanor change. You get to see him grow as a person. You get to see his relationship with Pearl grow. And it's fascinating to me to see someone who is basically faced with the worst of humanity, almost like on a regular basis, and still comes out as someone who is just as good as he was in the very first volume. It speaks, and 
I didn't mean to say it like this, but it speaks volumes about his strength of character and it makes his uh, relationship with Pearl and ultimately what happens to their relationship incredibly engaging. Uh, just as engaging, though, I have to talk about uh, Calvin Poole right alongside uh, Henry Preston. Calvin is introduced in uh, Volume 3, I believe, uh, alongside Henry Preston's uh, World War II adventures. And Calvin is a character who is part of the uh, VMS initially, but through um, means that I don't want to spoil for you, ends up becoming a more uh, prominent character and a mainstay character in the series. And he is essentially, I mean, I'm biased. I love, I love a character named Cal, you know me, but uh, Calvin Poole is a fantastic character. Um, because you get to see uh, kind of how the ta the changing of the times affects him as well, because he is a black man. Um, some of the interactions that he has in the uh, 50s and 60s are really fascinating and really horrifying to watch, um, not just in a in a you know horror genre way, but in a you know a human way. He has to go through a lot of shit, and it's really it really speaks to his strength of character that he's able to go through all of this and still be, again, a good, honest, and loyal man. Um, speaking of good, honest, and loyal men and women, uh, I gotta give a shout-out real quick to the books. Uh, James Book and his daughter Felicia Book. Uh, James Book, as I stated before, is the adoptive brother of Skinner Sweet, and he is more or less the protagonist of the uh, Stephen King penned backup issues in the first volume, and he becomes a fairly prominent character during that time period. However, the superstar of the book family really is Felicia Book. Felicia Book is a is an absolute just tour de force as a character. Uh, she's introduced in volume two and is um, the partial... Uh, she is the daughter of... Uh, Abelina and James Book, and is also, you know, has some vampire blood in her veins. And I love this character because she is, it, it would be very easy for Scott Snyder to just say, oh, you know, Felicia Book is basically a Pearl Jones, just not fully vampirized. Um, I don't even know if that's a word, vampirized. But, um, and especially with their designs, they could be mistaken for each other very easily, though as the series goes on, they make a more concerted effort. Raphael Albuquerque does a great job um, differentiating the two of them, even when they are within the same panel. So Felicia Book becomes this character who is just enveloped with this hate for Skinner Sweet because of his relationship with her father. And watching her go throughout the years... Um, we initially meet her in uh, Las Vegas as she's, uh, dis uh, what is the word? Investigating. Investigating some disappearances that might be vampire-related. Um, we see her also in Volume 3 go uh, undercover uh, for this incredible story um, that, as I stated earlier, is... Uh, uh, illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy. And as the time goes on, we get to see her become more of a mother figure. We get to see her uh, become more involved in her father's work and with the work of the Vassals of the Morning Star. And watching her character development, especially when we get to finally have her meet some of the other characters, because for most of the run, most of the run of the series, she 
she is uh, running parallel to the main events between Skinner and Pearl, she's off on her own adventures. And it would be, again, very easy for the quality to kind of dip with her stories, but thankfully that is not the case here because her stories are some of the most compelling in the entire series. And she is a fantastic character that I um, I absolutely love. And she's definitely one of my favorites for sure. Um, alongside her in at least... Uh, some of her adventures is uh, Cash McCogan, who starts off as, I believe, police chief when the two of them meet, and once again, as just a normal guy, gets just enveloped in the world of vampire intrigue, and watching his changing relationship with Felicia Book is really fascinating to watch, and his legacy throughout the story, because he is a human, he's he is a straight human, he's not a vampire, uh, his legacy throughout the story is felt, even in stories that he doesn't show up in, and he's a fantastic character that I, um, that is perfect as a as a foil for Felicia in her stories. Uh, but the character that everyone likes to really talk about and a character who doesn't even show up until I believe volume four uh, is our boy Travis Kidd. Travis Kidd first pops up in the 50s era of the um, of the story. And Travis Kidd is a vampire hunter. I, th I believe he's 19, 19 or 20. He's fairly young. Uh, but he's a straight-up vampire hunter with the greaser aesthetic, rolling around with his pompadour, his leather jacket, sunglasses, and his nice candy apple red car, uh, hunting vampires. And it's so fun watching his stories, uh, or reading his stories, rather, um, because he's such a breath of fresh air from everyone who gets very who get very serious. Um, and these are, of course, very serious events, but he has a very similar spirit to Skinner Sweet, which is funny because Skinner Sweet was involved in the killing of his parents when he was very young. So Travis, just like Felicia, is hunting Skinner across the U.S. Um, Travis is very, you know, devil may care. I'm going to throw myself into a situation to see what happens. Um, there's a scene where he is walking up to a house and he's just, he asks, you know, how many are in there? And so, you know, the person he's speaking to says more than you can handle. And he's like, yeah, okay. And he busts in there just with a baseball bat, some, uh, stakes and his signature, uh, wooden fangs. So, you know, um, during the Halloween season where you were kids and you'd get those little, like, uh, plastic glow-in-the-dark vampire fangs from like a Chuck E. Cheese or the or your normal Halloween store that you just you you'd put and you'd get the you know Halloween fangs um come to find out that Travis Kidd invented those but he made them wood because as he states in the series I like you know, they like to bite, I like to bite them back. And so it's this fascinating character who just like Skinner Squeet in Skinner Sweet, what was that? Uh, Skinner Sweet, in more ways than I think he'd like to admit, just comes through as an absolute tornado into every single story that he pops into. Um, I will say that his kind of star-making performance in Volume 4 isn't so much followed up on uh, during his run, of, during the later uh, volumes of the series. He kind of takes a back seat, which is unfortunate, but anytime that he does pop up, Oh man, 
is he a fun watch? But alongside Travis Kidd, there is another character that shows up pretty late in the game, but ends up becoming what I would consider the big bad of the series. And this is known as the Grey Trader. I don't want to tell you too much about him because I want you to discover him on your own when you go and read through this series. But the Grey Trader is um, terrifying in a word. He is this incredibly unsettling character who in every story that he pops up on instantly sends shivers down my spine when he actually physically shows up. Um, People know about him, people talk about him in the series, and they all have that same, you know, feeling when it's like, oh man, did you say the Grey Trader? But you use those words exactly, right? And it's so fascinating to watch this character who um, I don't know if he was initially thought up on were thought up of in the uh, planning stages of this series, but there's this interesting, um, uh, what's the word? This is there's this interesting effect that he brings to the story, where even though he doesn't pop up until fairly late in the game, you can feel the effects of his character throughout the entire run from the very first issue, and I find that fascinating. And as a big bad, you couldn't ask for more. A character who makes his presence known when he is ready to and you are terrified of him from start to finish um but that is kind of the basic breakdown for this series uh i love it i love this i really i'll be honest only started reading the american vampire series last year but i completely fell in love with it and every single volume just seems to get better and better and better. And some of my favorite volumes, I, I'll just talk about my uh, my favorite volumes, um, are Volume 3, uh, entitled... They don't really have titles for them, so to speak. It's just American Vampire, Volume 1, American Vampire, Volume 2. Uh, when it comes to the collected editions, there are... Um, different like like we have american vampire 1976 there's like american vampire lord of nightmares there's american vampire uh ghost war but volume three uh has to do with the uh the 40s the world war ii aspect and you know me i'm a sucker for world war ii stories and world war ii stories plus vampires especially scott snyder Raphael albuquerque vampires it is a absolute recipe for perfection um not just because the stories involve the um, political stuff going on in the 40s, not just the World War II aspects of it, but this is also where we meet Calvin, Calvin Poole. This is where uh, Henry Preston takes the stage as the lead character for the first time, and it's just, it's fantastic. I really, really enjoy it. Um, and then Volume 5. Uh, did I say... Yeah, so Volume 5, which is essentially, um, I call it the Red Scare, uh, deals with the the late 50s, early 60s, and you get to see some really messed up stuff happen in this volume. Um, I'm a big fan as as well for the... um, uh, for the Lord of Nightmares backup that's as part of this volume. Um, In the same way that... um, Oh, what's it called? Uh, the I'm gonna have to look that up. No, I'm not going to look it up. Okay, I'll I'll look it up because I I want to get this right. Uh, volume three and volume five both share a uh, a backup story for uh, Felicia Book. Uh, volume three. Let me see here. 
da, 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 da. I'm gonna pull it up here. Uh, yes, here we go. Um, so volume three has not just um, the Ghost War uh, arc where Henry essentially is drafted by the uh, by the vassals of the Morning Star to go after these uh, the basically go behind enemy lines in uh, in Japan to go and find out the secret of some experiments being done there. And then the uh, Felicia Book storyline is called Survival of the Fittest, where um, also set during this time, Felicia Book and Cash McCogan are reunited to basically go undercover in this very spy-esque story uh there's nazis there's nazi vampires it's just fantastic i love it and it is a it is probably i would say my favorite volume in the entire series um but i will say that volume five is a very close second um volume five is like i said in the uh late 50s where um uh we get to see Pearl returned to Hollywood, and I ah, I love it so much. Um, and the backup story, Lord of Nightmares, uh, once again uh, involves Felicia Book seemingly having retired after the events of Volume 3, and all of the bad stuff that happens there is just so well done. There might be an appearance from Dracula, who knows? You'll just have to read it. But those are probably my two favorite volumes, but every single volume is worth reading. Um, I would say, I think it was volume six is a volume exclusively of like anthology style stories, but the, um, I believe it's called Long Road to Hell in uh, volume six is one of my favorite Travis Kidd stories. So I would definitely check that out. Um, all the volumes are worth your time though. But that brings us to the 70s, specifically 1976, where... Issue one is going to be dropping this week. We are returning with our boy Skinner Sweet leading the charge, looking very evil Knievel. And this is it. This is the last ride. These last nine issues are going to wrap up the story that um, Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque have been working on for this pretty much this entire decade. And I can't wait to pick this up. Um, it is going to be bittersweet. Ah, see what I did there, Skinner Sweet, bittersweet. Um, to to read the final chapters of this but when you go through the entire ride it is so good um i would say i don't think you necessarily need to read every single volume to jump into 1976 i would say you can absolutely jump into it uh, i wouldn't say jump into it blind i hope that throughout this segment this episode We've kind of given you the tools to succeed, to jump into that, uh, to look at specific volumes if you want. Um, like I said, three and five are probably my favorite, though two, uh, dealing with 1930s Vegas, is pretty great as well. And four is, again, where we are introduced to uh, Travis Kidd. So really every single volume of this is worth your time. Um, volume seven and volume eight deal with... Um, the mid to late 60s dealing with the space race russians all that stuff it's really really good uh, a little bit of vietnam tied in there as well which i like um and honestly the biggest endorsement i can give for this is just go read it if you are a fan of scott snyder's work in dc comics with batman with uh 
Dark Knight's Metal, Death Metal, all the stuff, Justice League, all the stuff that he does, you owe it to yourself to read this. It's the perfect comic to read during the Halloween season. Um, and as good news for you, if you are a fan of... Um, of reading digital comics, the first two volumes, volume one and volume two of the series, both in 1920s Hollywood with the backup by Stephen King, as well as the uh, 30s Vegas story that introduces you to Cash McCogan and Felicia Book, are free. That's right, free on Comixology right now. You can go read those. They give you a great basis for what the story is. And... Um, I promise you, if you are a fan of this kind of genre, if you're a fan of these kind of stories, you will be hooked after the first volume, and even more so after volume two. Uh, so that really does it for this edition of the Geek Explain Spotlight. I cannot tell you how excited I am about uh, American Vampire 76. It is going to be, it has been literally the wildest ride going from. Um, the birth of the first American vampire in the late 1800s all the way to nearly a hundred years later. And for the saga of Skinner Sweet and Pearl Jones slash Preston, I cannot wait to see how it ends. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. Specifically, we're reviewing episode 7 of season 2 of The Boys, entitled Butcher, Baker, Candlestick Maker. Um, this episode, oh my god. <laughs> This, this so much happened in this episode, and it was freaking ridiculous. Um, I still think that last episode is probably my favorite episode of the season, but this episode, oh, wow. Um, we are definitely heading into the end of the season because they pulled out all the stops. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump into it. The start of the episode, oh my god, I have to talk about this. Um, the start of this episode was such a commentary on modern radicalization. Um, and it was fucking haunting how current and accurate it is. Uh, basically, this guy who is just like spending all of his time in hero worship and sitting at a, uh, a computer every single day, feeling a little judged, but um, is just steadily like showing the passage of time, him getting more and more indoctrinated to like uh, Stormfront and... Uh, Homelander's message of, like, us against them and, like, this, like, anti-immigrant, like, uh, rhetoric that they are very blatantly showing <laughs> in this show uh, to the point that he kills a shopkeeper because he is a foreigner. And it is so... Um, Oh my god. Yeah, I like I had to pause it after the after this intro section that I just like it it was a little too real, hit a little too close to home. Um I was just wow. Just this show has been so um uh so good at providing really great 
modern and current social commentary that it showing something like that was just ooh, it was spooky it just really it sent chills up my spine um but yeah so we move right ahead on into the uh a plot of this episode which is the boys and lamplighter working with congress for this hearing that vod is going to go um go into for Congress to kind of shut down Vought, Compound V, the whole deal. Um, also during this, at the same time, Starlight is captured and essentially like exposed to the Seven to being a uh, to being a traitor. So Black Noir is just, Black Noir has been just steadily becoming one of my favorite characters in the show. Um, if you read the comics, you know like the secret behind him. I don't think they're going that direction with this. I don't think that that's what they're doing with with uh, this version of the character. Um, if you know, you know. If you don't, I'm not going to spoil it for you. But I'm really interested to see if they go more into what is going to go on with him because he has just been slowly and slowly edging himself into the spotlight here. And as the ranks of the seven start to diminish, he's only going to get more time and more time in the spotlight. Um, so yeah, Starlight is captured and Huey, who is put in charge of watching the prime witness for uh, these congressional hearings, which is Lamplighter, uh, decides to take Lamplighter with him to go to Vought headquarters to rescue starlight and this is just a bad idea all across the board um just really just bad just really really bad um because once they get in there uh lamplighter reveals that he wasn't there to actually help huey uh rescue starlight he just sets himself on fire in the main conference room um which sucks because I really liked Lamplighter. He was really messed up, you could tell. But I was hoping we were going to get more time with him. But I guess not. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, by basically, by essentially coincidence, uh, Starlight is able to escape. She has this great little beatdown with ba Black Noir in the conference room next to Lamplighter's dead body. And it looks like Black Noir is about to kill Starlight. But then Maeve, who has been like steadily becoming more and more disillusioned with the uh, with the whole system, even more so than she already was, uh, comes in and saves Starlight by forcing Black Noir to eat an Almond Joy. Because I guess he has a, a tree nut allergy. Um... Just great stuff. Uh, but she ultimately separates from Starlight, saying, like, I can't come with you. So I'm interested to see what she does after this. She ends up going up against Homelander. Um, we've been working towards it. So I'm really excited to see what Maeve does next. Um, Huey and Starlight, after Huey rescues Starlight's mom, do end up escaping. But, oh man, that was uh, that was harrowing. Um, in another plot that we have in this episode, so much happens in this episode. Um, Homelander and Stormfront go to visit Ryan, his son, and it is awkward as fuck. It is just, oh man. Um, it's just really bad because you know exactly what he's there to do. You know exactly like what's happening. Uh, anyone who has uh, been a child of divorce and the dad, you know, brings around his new girlfriend is knows what what's happening here because like he's trying to and i'm not saying this is like a blanket statement on every divorce but like he's basically like hey you know your mom is super boring and she's been lying to you the whole time this can be your new mom and it's like uh again made my skin crawl i was just like uh it, it's so, because you know what he's trying to do and it's so bad because he eventually reveals you know that um because of Vaude and everything that uh, 
Becca has been keeping Ryan essentially in this, you know, enclosed neighborhood. Ryan finds out the truth. Uh, Homelander is able to turn Ryan against Becca, and then him and Stormfront leave with Ryan. Sucks. Um, we also get a, a little, a couple visits to uh, Dr. Vogel, Vogelbaum, who I was surprised to see alive. Uh, we had talked about, or I guess Homelander talked about in the first season, how he you know, forced the truth out of Vogelbaum, so I assumed that that meant he was dead, but I guess not. Um, really interesting. Uh, first, M.M. and Mallory go to visit Vogelbaum, but then so does Butcher after he realizes that Lamplighter is dead and he needs to get another witness. Um, meanwhile, during all of this, we have a we have that continuing storyline of A-Train slowly starting to be brought into the Church of the Collective. Um, the leader of the Collective, I can't remember his name for the life of me, uh, tells uh, A-Train in the Deep at a party that he is actually meeting with, um, with the head of Vought to potentially get them back into the Seven. Um, and at the same time, they have just, like, excommunicated, I think his name is Hawk? No, Eagle. Uh, Eagle the Archer, um, because he was unwilling to, I guess, cut off his mom to be part of the collective. It's really, it's very culty. It's very blatant about how culty it is. A-Train is still just like, what the hell is going on here? But you can see that they're slowly starting to open doors for him, and he might end up turning uh, towards the collective. Like I said, I'm all in on A-Train's story this season. So, so good. And then everything culminates at the official congressional hearing. Uh, where it is revealed that in the light of Lamplighter uh, killing himself, Butcher has convinced Vogelbaum to testify on his behalf. Or not, because his head explodes in the middle of the hearing, along with a bunch of people's heads exploding. Um, Even Shockwave, who was brought in as that A-Train replacement, I'm wondering now, because, you know, at first I was like, oh, it's probably... um, you know, some people have talked about, oh, it's uh, that lady who's uh, got the telekinesis, who she escaped last episode. But um, the deputy director of the FBI's head also exploded. I have a feeling that it's one of two things. And I think next episode we're going to find out, so we're going to find out if I'm right. On the one hand, it might be Stormfront, since because she has those electrical powers, she could probably use her powers to, like, light up the electrons or some kind of, like, biochemistry thing to make people's heads explode. Or, and I think this would be even more interesting, because for me the only member of the seven who was in that room, because there are quite a few members um, whose head exploded was Shockwave, coincidentally the replacement for A-Train. I think this might be something from the Church of the Collective. So it's I, I think it's either one of those two things, and hopefully next episode we're going to get some answers and we'll find out if I'm right. But, oh my god. <laughs> Just blatantly like everyone's head exploding. Um, luckily they are able to get the, um, the congresswoman who has kind of been on their side out of the room, but Oh my god, just like ending on everyone's heads exploding uh, was quite the way to end the episode and get you invested in next week's episode. I can't wait. It is going to be incredible. Uh, This whole season has been such a treat to watch. Um, 
and I would say it is almost just as good as the first season. If they stick the landing with this finale episode, I will say it was on par with the first season, because it has been really, really good making sure that every single character that you cared about from the first season is utilized and given uh, an equal amount of time. I think it's been incredible, and I can't wait to watch next week's episode. So tune in next week for the finale, and then also after that, we will be rolling into a couple weeks of... Uh, Wildcard Weekly Reviews once again. I'm excited to do that. And then next week I will be announcing what our next weekly review subject will be about. So stay tuned next week for that. But for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we've got to take a look back at last week. I don't know why I suddenly went I suddenly went into an Australian accent. Got to take a look back at last week's books. That's awful. That is an awful accent. And I apologize to everyone who just had to listen to that. Um, with the Geeks Plane pick of the week of last week. And terrible accents aside, I'm really, really impressed with last week's pick, which is Batman Joker Warzone number one. I really, really dug this book. I didn't think it was going to be the pick of the week. There are a couple books that I definitely thought were going to take the top spot, but um, I really enjoyed it. Just an anthology series talking about uh, the goings-on in Gotham during the entire Joker War process. Really enjoyed Clown Hunter, but the standout story for me uh, was a little story that had to do with a couple of Batgirls, uh, Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown. Um, I loved this. If this is canon, if this is, which I have no reason to assume it's not, um, we've got a couple new Batgirls on the scene. So I'm really excited about that. Cassandra Kane finally, finally graduating into Batgirl status again. Um, I'm really excited. So uh, that is last week's pick, but that's last week. Let's talk about this week. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine books. My God. Um, so yeah, we've got nine books. Um, I'm going to be talking about each book's title, the synopsis, creative team, and of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by synopsis voices, so get ready for that. Let's go ahead and dive into the list, which starts off with Champions number one. We talked about this back in the uh, Kamala Khan episode. If you haven't checked that out, please do so. Um, this is, I'm assuming, like the culmination of the Outlawed storyline, which kind of stalled because of um, COVID. So I'm excited to dive back into this. I really enjoy the early runs of Champions, and it seems like they finally, like, they've got their groove. And they've got a great creative team on this, too. Written by uh, Eve Ewing with art by Simone DeMeo. Um, DeMeo? DeMeo? I pronounced that wrong, and I apologize. Um, but I'm really excited about this. I, I've been looking forward to this for a little while now, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Outlawed Part 1 of 5. The champions return in troubled times. A law is passed that goes against everything Ms. Marvel, Nova, and Spider-Man founded the champions for. But the world still needs heroes, even if the world doesn't want them right now. 
After Miss Marvel makes an unexpected and emotional announcement that her team won't go down without a fight, a group of teen vigilantes gathers to plan their next move. But the Cradle Task Force is hot on their trail, and there's a spy in their midst. So I'm really, like, it sounds awesome. I'm glad that they're bringing it back to kind of the core champions team, Miles Morales, Sam Alexander, uh, Kamala Khan. It's, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. This is promising some big stuff, so I can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Black Widow number two, written by Kelly Thompson with art by Elena Casagrande. I really enjoyed the first issue. I thought it was really good. It puts Natasha in an interesting place that we haven't really seen her in before. Uh, with a lot of questions, and it's reuniting the boys. Bucky Barnes, Clint Barton, should be a good time. Really looking forward to this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Ties That Bind, Part 2 Widow no more. Something is very wrong with Natasha Romanoff. She's happy? Retirement definitely agrees with the world's deadliest woman as she revels in the perfect life she never even dreamed she could have. But scratch the surface of that perfect life and you'll find something very wrong. And a woman like Nat just can't help but scratch. Russian's hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm excited about this. Anytime that you bring... Uh, Avengers characters, Marvel characters of the West Coast, you will automatically gain my attention. Like I said, I really enjoyed the first issue. Um, the art is gorgeous. Elena uh, Casagrande is wonderful. Jordi Belair is on colors as well, and she's magical. So I'm um, really looking forward to picking this book up. Next, we have Marauders number 13, written by Jonathan Hickman and Vita Ayala, with art by Matteo Lali. This is part of the X of Swords, or Ten of Swords, um crossover uh this is chapter five if you want to hear some of our uh or my favorite x-men events check out last week's episode if you haven't already big fan of that um so yeah let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here x of swords chapter five a secret flight a long journey a thief and a queen so yeah, really descriptive. Um, again, this is uh, part five of Ten of Swords. I'm, you know, I've been enjoying the Marauders book on its own. So I'm hoping that uh, because I haven't been reading a lot of the other X books, um, it doesn't deviate too much and become just oh, this will be a stopgap for Ten of Swords. And if you are into the normal Marauders book, this won't appeal to you at all. I'm hoping that's not the case, because I think they just hit a point where they are about to tell some really good stuff in the continuing saga of um, the Red and White Queen versus the Black King. So looking forward to this all the same. Next up, we have Thor number eight, written by Donnie Cates with art by Aaron Cuter. I'm so glad they brought him back, and I'm so glad that they are doing this story. It's really fun. I loved that first issue of this uh, of this story, Hammerfall, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. I'm sad that it's only two parts, but, I, you know, it's fine. I get it. Um, I just, I'm, I'm really excited at the premise of this. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Hammerfall. Part two of two. You get a Mjolnir. And you get a Mjolnir. And everyone gets a hammer. That's right, come on down to Broxton, Oklahoma, and pick up Mjolnir for yourself. The famed hammer of the Thunder God is free for the taking. No worthiness required? So this is continuing the story again from last issue where, uh, 
Mjolnir is becoming heavier for Thor, but less heavy for everyone else. So I'm really interested. I, I like these kind of stories that challenge um, the status quo for the character. I also really like our new Thor. I hope he sticks around past this story, uh, but we'll see. I'm looking forward to this all the same. Moving on over to our next book, which is Deceased Dead Planet number four, written by Tom Taylor with art by Trevor Harrison and Gigi Baldassani. Baldassini, I apologize. Um, this this is a stacked week. This is a stacked week. I love it so much. Um, this is, uh, again, part four of Deceased Dead Planet. Um, I've been loving it. It's so good. Of course, because it's deceased, because it's Tom Taylor, Trevor Harrison. It is amazing. I can't wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis. Time is running out for the Justice League to unlock the anti-life cure as they face a deadly new threat on Earth. In addition to the billions of the undead, their final desperate attempt at finding the cure will take them off-planet for the greatest heist in the history of New Genesis. So we knew at the beginning of Deceased, the first um, miniseries, I kicked this whole thing off, that it was the uh, it was Darkseid who kind of you know was the first victim of this uh, anti-life zombie-fied thing. So I'm really interested to see how it's affected New Genesis and the rest of the fourth world. Um, and I can't wait to pick this up again. I, I just, I love this book so much. Moving right along to Firepower number four, written by Robert Kirkman with art by Chris Somney and Matthew Wilson. Um, I just, I love this book. I love it so much. I just, I really, 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 really dig it. Um, and this is a huge week. I am reading so many comics. Um, really looking forward to this. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Things go from bad to worse as Owen and Kelly's night out turns into a nightmare. Thankfully, the kids are safe at home. Aren't they? So, yeah, I can't wait to pick this up. Um, it's been really good so far. Uh, I, I really like how dynamic the covers are as well, uh, really selling the action that Somni is so good at crafting. I can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Far Sector number 8, by, uh, written by N.K. Jemison with art by Jamal Campbell. Oh, I love this week. This, is, this might be my favorite week of comics in a long time because there are so many books that I love that are coming out. Um... I, just like I'm sure a lot of people, were heartbroken when I found out that Far Sector would be going to buy monthly, uh, especially because they're in the home stretch of this series. Um, I, I love this book, and I'm really excited to uh, go ahead and pick this up. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. While still processing her feelings about Counselor Moth, Joe tracks down the Riders who killed Averup Thorn and gets the first hint of what's really going on beneath the surface of the city enduring. Reporting to the Council, Joe is disgusted to realize she's facing the same kind of callous responsibility avoiding bureaucracy as back home on Earth. So, again, I've been really enjoying this. It's a very neo-noir detective story, um, and I love Joe Moline as a Green Lantern. Um, 
I really do think that she is the future of the franchise. So I'm looking forward to picking this book up. Uh, Next up, the big book that uh, we've talked about throughout this episode so far, American Vampire 1976, number one, written by Scott Snyder with art by uh, Raphael Albuquerque. Um, This is the, uh, this is the final ride, the last ride of American Vampire, our boy Skinner Sweet. I can't wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis here. America is broken. Trust between the government and the American public has crumbled. Paranoia reigns supreme. It's 1976, and this is the concluding chapter of the Eisner Award-winning American Vampire. Skinner Sweet has exhausted all efforts to regain his lost immortality. With his powers and purpose gone, he is now determined to go out with a bang. At a CD motorcycle rally in the desert where he's closer than ever to his death wish, Pearl Jones and a shocking partner track him down for one last desperate mission. The force known as the Grey Trader and its minions are tunneling through the bowels of the world to unleash hell on Earth, just in time for America's bicentennial. With catastrophe looming, it's up to Skinner and Pearl to reconcile and change the course of history, or die trying. The series that launched the careers of superstars Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque returns for nine final issues in the closing chapter of the legacy of American Vampire. Um, that's it. Tells you everything you need to know. Um, this is it. This is the final chapter. Um, some of those things may be a little confusing. Um, this is the time to catch up on the book. Um, hopefully we gave you the tools to do so. Um, and I can't wait to pick this up. I love this cover. I've always loved Raphael Albuquerque's, um, his art, but I really, I dig how his, uh, how his art changes and shifts from time period to time period. I, I, I can't wait to pick this up. I'm really excited. It's nine final issues. This is the final chapter, the last ride of American Vampire. So definitely make sure you pick this up. And alongside that, the big book of the week, the book I think you should definitely be picking up alongside American Vampire 1976, Far Sector, Firepower number four. Pretty much every single book this week is a big book of the week. But uh, the one that I had to give the nod to is Batman number one. This is the finale to the Joker War. This is it. Everything comes down to this. Uh, The chess pieces are all set up and ready to uh, go to battle. Um, This is... This is the closing chapter. This is what we've been building towards. This is what uh, James Tynan IV and George Jimenez have been crafting. I can't wait to pick this up. Let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Joker War Finale. The Joker War comes to a city-shattering conclusion as Batman battles the Joker in a brutal, no-holds-barred duel. This is a fight 80 years in the making, and its outcome won't just change Batman's life, it will change Gotham City for years to come. Plus, catch the first glimpse of the new villain known as Ghostmaker. And after the senses-shattering conclusion of the Joker War, come a pair of short stories that will chart what's to come in Gotham City and Batman. Don't miss the first showdown between Batman and Clown Hunter. So that's a lot. They're packing a lot into this issue. So it looks like it's not just going to be the finale of Joker War, but it says, you know, two short stories that are, I'm assuming, going to 
uh, give us kind of a window into what's uh, going to be hitting the Batman books in the coming year. Uh, we still have the John Ridley Batman miniseries, which may or may not be in continuity on the horizon. So I'm wondering if we're going to get a, uh, a tease at that. I'm looking at the uh, creator list, which I should have done first obviously but uh written by james tyne in the fourth with art by uh danny mickey carlo pagulian i probably pronounced that incorrect and i apologize uh guillaume march and of course our boy george Jimenez. um i just can't wait to pick this up uh i really do think that joker war has been a fantastic story um it might not be everyone's cup of tea but for me it's been hitting all of the right chords and i can't wait to pick this book up so to recap, uh, a huge week in comics, one that I have been anticipating and one I am so excited to get to the shop to uh, kick off. We have Champions number one, Black Widow number two, Marauders number 13, Thor number eight, DC Dead Planet number four, Firepower number four, Far Sector number eight of 12, American Vampire 1976 number one, and Batman number 100, Joker War Finale. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice. And also, if you liked what we do here, give us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. It really helps me out, really helps out the podcast, kind of raises our stock in the podcasting world and gets us into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you do give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, I will read out your rating and review here on the podcast. Whatever you want to write, I will read it here, guaranteed. You can join the likes of Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, and Matt Draper. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You are valued and you are appreciated. And if you want to join them, like I said, go ahead and give us a rating and review, a five-star rating and review on iTunes slash Apple Podcast slash whatever you want to call it. Um, also, uh, if you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag, you can send any questions. If you want to get my opinion on something, uh, feel free to send those to geeksplain at gmail.com. Uh, I love getting emails from you guys. It's just the highlight of my week that I get to kind of talk about them on here. Uh, I got a lot of opinions, as you could probably tell after, what is this, 128 episodes of this podcast. So if you have a, uh, a geeky question or you want to get my opinion on something, feel free to send those over there and I will answer them as part of our Geeksplained mailbag. Also, you can follow us at Geeksplained Pod. That's at Geeksplained P-O-D on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with the podcast, the happenings, the goings on. And and you can also be involved in polls and stuff that I will put up there to kind of decide the future of this podcast. Our most recent poll decided our latest edition of the Pitch It series, where I pitch a diff my version of a different film, TV show, whatever you want to call it. Uh, our latest Pitch It. Iron Fist, the animated series, will be coming out thanks to the votes that it received on our poll on Twitter. I do have to let you know that I miscounted the weeks that were um, that were coming up. So initially, the uh, Iron Fist pitch it was going to be on episode 130, which would put us right smack in the middle of October. And since we are doing the Geektober series, I've decided to push it back a little bit to episode 135. So episode 135 will be our 
pitch it for the uh, Iron Fist animated series. I can't wait to talk to you guys about it. It is something that is near and dear to my heart, something I've had in my mind for a very long time, and I can't wait to share it. Uh, I also, I'm just looked at Twitter when I was getting ready to uh, do the transition here, getting ready to wrap up. And um, I just found out, like I'm reading right here, that the Batman's been delayed again. Oh, it makes me sad. Uh, so apparently the Batman will now be um, uh, dropping into theaters on March 4th of 2022. Dear Lord, they couldn't even... Mm, that makes me mad. Um, I understand. I understand what's going on, um, especially now that they had to delay production again with uh, Robert Pattinson getting COVID. But it sucks. Um, I think it was like just a couple days ago, people were posting all over Twitter like, the Batman, you know, comes to theaters one year from today, and it looks like that's not going to happen. Um, I really, I kind of wish that they had stuck with, like, a uh, late fall slash winter release date. Who knows? It might get moved back up. Um, I think a... I think a December Batman film could do really, really well. I don't know why. I'm just spitballing. But, um, yeah. So, March 4th, 2022 is when that is going to drop. Makes me sad, but, um, again, I understand. And if it is being pushed back to uphold the quality that we got from that DC fandom trailer... Take all the time in the world that you need. But, uh, as I stated in the main, uh course of this episode this is the first installment of geektober every week of october i'm going to be tackling a new uh i'm going to be tackling a new topic in the horror genre across different media next week i'm really excited about this i am going to be talking about one of my favorite Halloween traditions, I watch this every single year, and I cannot wait to talk about why I love Over the Garden Wall. That's right, we're going from comics to animation. I can't wait to talk about Over the Garden Wall. It is so just Halloween perfection. So tune in next week for part two of Geektober on Over the Garden Wall. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and spooky, and we will see you next time. And you will see This our town of Halloween This is Halloween This is Halloween Pumpkins scream in the dead of night This is Halloween Everybody make a scene Trick or treat Tell the neighbors on the diaphragm It's our town Everybody scream It's town of Halloween I am the one hiding under your bed Teeth ground sharp and eyes glowing red I am the one hiding under your stairs like snakes and spiders in my hair. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, 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 Halloween. In this town we call home, everyone hail to the pumpkin song. In this town, don't we love it now? Everybody's waiting for the next surprise. Round that corner and hiding in the trash can, something's waiting now to pounce and how you scream. This is Halloween. It's like a green. Aren't you scared? Well, that's just fine. Say it once, say it twice, take it.
I scream! Everyone hail to the pumpkin song. Halloween, 